listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. All right, I have a, a, a burning question for you, Bracken. Burn it down. Well, you made me feel a little stupid yesterday. I don't want to do that. Uh, you did. You really did. Um, I thought I was being clever, and I caught a spelling mistake in our episode <laughs> title. And so I circled it and sent it to you, thinking that you spelled regrets wrong. Regerts is how you had it. And clearly, I am not cool enough. You even had a snarky line with it. I was being funny. I don't care. It's not like move my meter of meter of anger or anything but anyways no but you gave me a sarcastic line thinking you caught me i did ironic post and then you made me feel silly for not seeing a snickers commercial in which somebody gets a no regrets tattoo on their arm but spelled wrong spelled as regerts yeah i've never seen that commercial i swear on my mother's life which means you probably haven't watched a lot of nfl football like five years ago. Yeah, I do though. I, I I did. I do. I mean, I just maybe it just didn't stick out to me. But anyway, so you need to apologize to me for making me feel stupid. I am sorry <laughs> that you feel this way. <laughs> one of it's one of those apologies. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was one of those Snickers. Uh, you're not you when you when you're hungry commercials. Oh, I remember. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's ironically, this is the best part of it, Kirk. From my from my end. Uh-huh. Lisa and I talked as we posted it that this is the type of post that's fun to make because someone who's not aware of the joke will go out of their way to reach out and tell you you did something wrong and really the joke's on them. And only one person did and it was my co-host. <laughs> and we we talked in advance that this is this will be a good little litmus test here and you're the only one it caught. So I'm the asshole? No, you're just the odd man out. I'll be curious if we take a poll. If you went and saw that, would you think instantly, oh, that's a typo or, oh, ha, 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 Snickers commercial? <laughs> I don't know. We'll never know. Maybe we'll have to put a poll on our Instagram. We'll find out. We should. Mm-hmm. It's good, clean fun. Anyway, you gave, us, you gave us some chuckles over here, Kirk, at your expense. Well, I chuckled at my expense good. afterwards, so... Did Jess know the reference? This has not been brought up to her. She wasn't around when I saw that. I haven't even asked. Okay. Okay. I'll ask tonight. Frame it as if it were me so that she's honest with you. Well, you think she'd lie to me? Yeah. Yeah, I think she'd want you to make you feel good. She adores you. She doesn't want to hurt your That's feelings. That's true. That's true. Well, she doesn't watch a lot of football, so you're probably going to strike out there. This isn't about football, though, or Snickers bar, or, or regerts, is it? No, this is the opposite of regrets, Kirk. <laughs> All right, well, maybe I'm the only idiot alive today. I don't know, but I doubt it. History says you're not. That's fair. So what are we doing here today? Why is it just us talking? Why don't, why don't, you, uh, why don't you tell the people? Oh, we're balancing out last week's episode. No regrets yep. or regrets was the, the topic, and we talked about all not all, many of our biggest regrets as runners, either as racers, as uh, people who are just a fan of running. But 
we didn't talk about some of them. We didn't get to some of our race regrets because we could have gone five hours. I didn't talk about any of my regrets as a coach because that would have taken 10 hours mm. of episode and it would have got a little bit too serious, I think, when you just talk about failing athletes. <laughs> we kept it light. Yeah, and we wrapped up with little defecation stories, which always seems to... <laughs> it, it says a lot about who you are when your audience responds best to uh, lowbrow humor. 12, 12-year-old boy humor seems to be the sweet spot for our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Which shouldn't shock us. <laughs> anyway... Today is the continuation of that, but it's the other side of the coin. The yin and the yang, so to speak, Kirk. So this is this episode is our stories of the things that we are most not regretful in our running career. <laughs> so actually no no regrets. No regrets. The things we're proud of. And it could be wins, it could be just great moments, just fantastic runs we've been on. This is another story hour, but it's the story of the successes of our running career. And it doesn't just have to mean a PR or a great race result, but anything that we have absolutely no regrets about in our life of running. Mm. Yeah, and we, it's not like we were necessarily planning on doing this today. And then we got a good feedback from the last episode, uh, which kind of yeah. surprised me because I've I've been under the principle since we started this. And I think I just need to let it go. Uh, and I've mentioned this a number of times, like we don't want to make this podcast about ourselves. We don't want to talk about ourselves or at least keep it to a minimum. And every time we seem to talk about ourselves, we seem to get a better response than when we don't. And it's very perplexing to me. And so following up the fact that some people took some things away from the no regrets episode or the re regrets episode, it made sense to do a, a no regrets episode so here we are talking about ourselves again today and i swear we're not trying to be self-serving we're just trying to uh, adapt to what you want guys that's it right well everyone everyone loves a good story and if you're listening on the long run which it really seems like a lot of people do what better way to get through a long run than someone just talking about racing that's true well we're gonna go training maybe we'll, we'll dip our toes in other waters today as well i think yeah yeah all right, so um, do we want to preamble this anymore? Or do you have a, a direction in which you would like to start? Because this this was more actually your idea, again, to do this, and you've had mm -hmm. some good ones lately. So Mastermind, how shall we start? I'm jumping in with my earliest memory of a successful race. Okay. Because at the end of the day, I am a, a racer. Mm -hmm. I train only to race for the most part. And so I couldn't be any more true to myself than starting with my earliest success as a racer. In West Dallas, which I moved into when we were a, when I was in a, going into sophomore year of high school, I believe, uh, there is the West Dallas uh, Rec Department Parade or something every year. And we were living in Milwaukee, but my dad was teaching in West Dallas, so we'd go every year. But festivities were always kicked off by a one-mile, sometimes a two-mile, I don't remember the distance anymore, fun run. Okay. And it was truly a fun run. Every kid from all the different rec departments where you would go and play on the playground as a kid all summer long would get together and do a foot race. And it was always just for fun, except at the top end, it was like legit bragging rights in the community. And we had kids that went on to win state from our area. Uh, there's a runner uh, named Paul Brown from our area. He won state. Emily Brown won state more than once. I think they wound up at Oshkosh. Paul Brown was my teammate for four years there, Brack. And I know a little, and roommate. I know a little bit about Paul Brown. 
So you know Paul and Emily. Emily actually went to mm-hmm. Minnesota, I believe, University of and Minnesota. And she she outran her brother Paul as far as their accolades um, immensely. Yep. Yeah, and so those are the people I grew up idolizing. They had all done great things after, but they had started by winning the West Dallas Rec Department Fun Run. Nothing bigger than that. And so they probably started dreaming at like six of one day I want to win that thing. And one day, Kirk, I thought it was my time. Let me guess how old you were. Can I guess how old you were? You may. I think you were 14, 13, 14. I was eighth grade going into ninth 13 grade. 13 or 14. Whenever that yeah. was. Yeah. And that's usually the cutoff. The high schoolers didn't generally come back and run it out of just a principle of pride. Mm-hmm. So the eighth graders were usually the champs. And every year it was run on the the McCarty Park cross-country course. They just did half of it or whatever it was to keep it short. Mile and a half, two miles. I can't even remember. And I should. And for whatever reason, they switched it to a road race this year and completely changed the course, and no one knew the course. And we were all on equal playing field. The year before, I had taken fourth. First and second were gone. The third-place finisher was returning, and he was a stud uphill runner. And I was not in the course finished uphill in McCarty Park or had it towards the end. On the road course, there was no uphill, Kirk. And I got on this boy's shoulder, and I went by at about 1,200 on a slight downhill, and I kicked for the finish with everything my little eighth-grade body had in me and absolutely turned myself inside out, and I won the rec department fun run championship. And I don't think you get anything for it, but in my mind, I was now a titan of the running community. That's incredible. Congratulations. Wow. So Emily Brown, Paul Brown, just know that I kept the torch burning after you left. And you don't know how far the distance was? Well, that's the confusing part because the cross-country course was different than what they made the road course. I remember they made it shorter the year I won, which obviously helped Mm -hmm. me. I think it was a mile and a half the year I won it, and it was two miles all other years. Smoke that loser. Do you remember how the— I don't even remember who it was. Do you remember how I went after the finish line? Did you cross and the finish line, raise your arms in the air, beat your chest— rub it in his face or was it like that awkward stage where you kind of didn't even acknowledge each other's existence but you knew you were better it was the middle of july it was so hot i was so unprepared i just entered the death realm immediately after Mm. and probably didn't leave it until after the non-existent award ceremony well 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 mine go back further than that really first of all are you still in contact with Paul Brown? No. I mean, we're friends on like Facebook, but no, we don't like have a dialogue okay. going. This man was the stud of all studs around here. Yep. They won a state championship, and he won the state championship. Yep. They, they set the line around here. No, what's funny is I, uh, I don't think I ever lost to him. I lost to him in cross country my freshman year. and then He's a very good cross And then runner. in track, I don't think I ever lost to him. I got a lot better my freshman year, though. I was like our uh, fifth or seventh best recruit at Oshkosh that year. I was one of the by the ways, but I, I soon became one of and then the, the best in our class for a short amount of time. But, yeah, he's fast. He was the he was the guy we all looked at at first day of practice, like Paul Brown's going to make an impact day one, and he did. He just didn't get a whole lot better after he made the transition to college, which is interesting. But that What you see with a lot of state champs, yeah. sometimes to be a state champ, you have to be overly developed early. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes you just get closer to your ceiling earlier than other people do. Yeah, and he was probably he was running a lot of mileage in high school and all that, but nonetheless, so mine actually goes back small world. 
to the same elementary school playground. Really? Uh huh. And uh, there was this girl, and I'll never forget her because I was in love with her. Her name was Jennifer Vanderwalker. What a name. And we'd do our talent days, and she'd do her little dance recital at third grader in front of the class, whatever. And every single boy had a crush on Jennifer Vanderwalker. And so, but she was an athlete. Like, she was an athlete, and she was quick, and she was, like, one of the one of the rare breeds at a young age. A little old, like, more, de- like, a foot taller than the rest of us, right? Because she just is, like, girls grow faster sometimes. And we would chase her around the playground in, in a big pack of boys. I mean, for 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 days in a row and she would just put up with it we would just chase her in waves chase her in waves there'd be like a timeout area where if she got to the building we couldn't chase her anymore to leave her alone but um i could always catch her i could always catch her every time and i was the only one who could catch jennifer vander walker out of this group of dudes i didn't even know what i was doing but i never did i'd always like pretend i couldn't because i didn't know what to do if i did right and so i knew right away when i was young that if i can catch jennifer vander walker like i'm pretty fast because none of these other guys can. Maybe they were just all too scared to catch her because they wouldn't know what to do with her when it happened. But people recognized that I, I could catch Jennifer. And the fifth grader was out there holding sprints on the uh, on the pavement at recess. And he was one of the cool kids. I don't think I really was one of the cool kids at that point. And they were just lining up person after person to race him. And everybody kept losing and everybody kept losing. And I was like, come on now. I was like, I'll race you. And so I got there, we towed the line, we raced, and I beat him. And he started making all these excuses, and that and I said, we got to do it again. He had raced, I don't know, he probably ran like 30 of these things already. And then we raced the second time, and he beat me. But I got respect that day. And that was the day people were like, oh, yeah, Kirk, you're the runner. I could catch Jennifer Vanderwalker, and I beat that fifth grader. And that was one of my earliest successes uh, as a runner. Granted, it was like a 50-yard sprint, but... There it is. I'll never forget that day. The seeds get planted early. They really do. So maybe I'd gain some good fitness by chasing around that girl all the time. I don't know. Maybe I was training. I didn't even know it. But that'd be my first. And there's no no takeaway from that whatsoever. Literally none other than the fact that uh, that's my first one. I like it. Playground love at its finest. There was no love being received on my end. It was just an infatuation at best. So. I think that's generally the way it begins. I remember we knew that she, uh, I wonder if she's doing these days. I have no idea, but, um, me and my buddy, Brian, were so in love with this girl that we, uh, we tried to save up our pennies and cut the neighbor's grass to buy her a dancing leotard for her birthday, but we didn't have the courage to talk to her, or even give it to her. So it was like mm-hmm. kind of a waste of time, but let's move on. I like that you teamed up to give her that. Yeah. yeah. It was like a, just pick one of us and we'll be happy. <laughs> we could afford it. We were, you know, we never gave it to her by the way. So what, what pops? Did you buy it? Uh, we did. Oh, so you bought it and didn't give it. No, because we changed schools after third grade. It doesn't matter. Uh, she went to a different one in fourth grade and never to be seen again. We thought she was coming What happened back. to the leotard? Couldn't tell you. I'll ask my mother, see if it's still stashed in a shoebox somewhere at home. It wasn't your first speed suit? <laughs> it was not my first speed suit. No, this one had um, some frillies on it and stuff, so... Yeah. Good story, Kirk. All right. We're off. We're off to a good start. What? A- well, speaking of off to a good start, Kirk, uh-huh. my very next race I ran after that was my first cross country race of high school. Mm. And we went to the Tremper Invitational. And this was always a big deal because this was like the sorting hat of cross country in Wisconsin. The sorting hat is a Harry Potter reference for all my fellow 
nerds out there, adult nerds. I'm getting none of your references in this this week. That's okay. Mm-hmm. You put the hat on, it tells you where you belong, Kirk. That's pretty much okay. that in a nutshell. Well, this was where you'd go to the first cross-country meet of the year, and everyone ran against their own class. There was the freshman race, the sophomore, the junior, the senior. And then that's what all these teams used to determine their varsity and JV rosters for the first meet of the year. Everyone ran the same course, same distance, just against their peers. And then the times determined what you do. But it was really prestigious to try to win your age group. I think uh, Selinski had won this one back in the day and went on to win state every single time he ever ran at state. And so, again, everyone thought if you could do what the studs had done previously, you would go on. And I didn't feel this race for like a mile and a half. The gun went off. It was my first high school competition of any sort. And I was on whatever version of a numbing agent due to adrenaline you have going. (laughs) And I didn't feel the first mile. Not like I felt great. Like I literally did not feel it. I had gaps in my memory already. We're one mile in and I was looking down like, oh my goodness, I don't remember what we were just doing. (laughs) It was the most bizarre, surreal feeling. And I looked and I was moving into the lead. You know, that's a, I mean, if you could bottle that and sell it when you're out on course, it's like that feeling when you're driving down the highway and then suddenly you snap to and you're like, I've been driving for a half an hour and I don't even remember what I've been doing. Imagine if you could bottle and sell that very thing in a race. You'd be rich. I've got it on long runs before, Hmm. but not on, not in a race. And, and this was, and I was moving into first and our coach had drilled into our heads. Just do not do anything dumb early. Don't take the lead until you think you can keep it. And here I am accidentally moving into first a mile in. And I still like, wasn't quite feeling it. I wasn't knowing what was happening. I did not feel an ounce of the race. And then Hmm. around a mile and a half, I made a wrong turn, probably because of this. The girls' course and the boys' course splits. You know how that happens in high school because girls run 4K in in Wisconsin, or at least did for a long time, and boys run 5K. And I went the wrong way and I snapped out of it and came back, and every step from there on out was pure agony. It was like the first mile and a half. It's not that I didn't feel it. It's that it was being held in escrow. And then they released the funds all at once, and it just (laughs) hit me. And I looked back and I was, I had like a hundred, 200 meter lead and every step, the rest of it was just mental anguish and physical anguish, knowing I'm just only going to get slower every single step here and out in the final loop. You run like 500 meters around the perimeter of these baseball diamonds and then come back down. And as I finally turned to come back down, I looked back and I still had 40 meters on second place. And I realized I was going to win, but I was also tying up. It was kind of that, who who do we talk about where you know you've got it won as long as you can keep going? Mm-hmm. That's what was happening. Like I had, We were talking with Miguel about that. He realized the race was in hand, but he didn't know if he could run any longer. Yep, that yep. was my feeling. And that final 200-meter stretch down into the finishing chute, in my mind, took like 10 or 15 minutes because I was just in quicksand. But I won. And I just thought cross-country is so easy. You don't feel the race for like a mile, (laughs) mile and a half. I'm really good at it, apparently. I beat every freshman in the area, and I did not win a race for another two and a half years, and I have never (laughs) once again in my life had that feeling. It was a a 
in a lifetime feeling, but I thought it was legitimately the way running went. And two and a half years it took until I won another high school race. So that one Bowman, I just, I had to subside off until I was like a junior and a half. Do you remember what your coach said to you after you crossed? No. I mean, was it obvious you did something stupid or no, he was, he was cool. No, cause it. I wasn't really fading. Everyone fades in those races, but I wasn't fading bad. And, and I, I ran like 1832 or something mm. like that. Like it wasn't mm. an exceptionally fast time, but it was decent for a freshman. I wasn't, I was yep. five feet foot tall. Like it looked like, yeah, this could probably be a runner, but I, I turned out not to be a runner for the next two and a half years, <laughs> but it just, it was the perfect start. But you become that guy then. If you're the freshman and you go in, like there is a pecking order that gets like, whether it's spoken about or not when you join these teams, especially in high school, pecking orders based on ability are arranged very quickly. And you just inserted yourself right like into the top of the pecking order, at least for your class, instantly. Mm-hmm. It's always like a really, that probably really helped you puff your chest out a little bit when you were walking down the halls at school, right? Like you were like, yeah, I'm the man. Not in school because running wasn't cool at our school, but at practice. I yep. went from being our third freshman to finish every interval to the first or second for the rest of the year. Just because hmm. I suddenly believed that was my spot. Yeah, I like it. Well, mine goes back to my first race my freshman year as well. I don't know if this was your first race, but mine was my Very first, first race. high school race. Yeah, cross country first race. So me too. And that's the next one that stands out. And it was a glorious day as well. And I think... These positive early experiences, like I've had some negative ones, but I think it's part of the reason why we're still at this, right? Like we had such a positive association for the most part with running and sense of self and all of that, that we're kind of the lucky ones, right? That we're, it's just kind of, once it's ingrained in you and you're young and impressionable and figuring out who you are, well, Christ, if you're 14 and this is happening to you, talk about identity, right? But we, we had a, uh, well, I guess I told this story. We we did a bio on ourselves, if you remember. We interviewed each other as guests a while back, and I think some of this stuff we talked about. But um, I actually had gone out for the soccer team my freshman year of high school because that was where some of my friends were. That's where the cool kids were. I wanted to be one of them. And I made the team. We only had a JV and a varsity squad. They took, like, seven freshmen, you know, like 15 sophomores. And I was one of the seven freshmen they took, which was a really big deal. Um, I started to realize I was the lowest man on the pecking order and I was not going to play. The other kids weren't really that nice to me. I was still pretty timid. Anyways, I just show up. I just don't go to soccer practice one day and show up at cross country practice on a Wednesday and we have a meet on a Thursday. And so, uh, quit the soccer team, obviously just didn't go to practice, didn't tell coach, didn't do anything. I just didn't want to go back. I couldn't bear the thought. So I show up, we go to this easy run. And then he's like, well, we got to meet tomorrow. You, you can race if you'd like. And I said, well, yeah, I'd like to race. And he said, well, I don't know what you're capable of, so let's put you on JV. He knew I had some sort of acumen from uh, eighth grade running where I'd run 5'11 in the mile as an eighth grader, and I told him that. And so anyways, get to the race, go to JV. You remember this stupid thing, and this is the thing where kids are just shitholes, is somebody would get into like an egg position behind you, and somebody would push you on the chest and you'd fall backwards over somebody. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. Well, the upperclassmen just did that to me as a freshman. For second day on cross country, somebody pushed me over somebody else. and I fell on my back and I was like, this is why am I even here now? I remember thinking that. And Nick was an asshole, by the way. He remained an asshole throughout my time knowing him. But then I got his respect after this day. So after this, I'm like, oh, like, what am I even doing here? And coach just said, well, I know you run 5'11", so whatever you do, just don't 
just don't take the lead until at least a mile in. And so I went out there and I jogged the first mile. And we came through in like six minutes, I think, or six oh. And then I went on to win by two and a half minutes. As soon as we hit the mile mark, I was like, this is easy. I took off. I won by two and a half minutes and I took second place in the varsity race based on time. Beat the dumb kid who pushed me over. I still want to go back and smack him for that day because I remember that just as well. But it was like the switch flipped on that day. I remember I was following the golf cart. Like, I didn't know that was even a thing. And everybody's like, who's that? Did that kid cut the course? Why is, where's everybody else? Everybody was just very perplexed, including myself. And uh, I quickly went from like the kid getting pushed over to uh, like, ah, shit, this kid's got some wheels. And that was a big day. That was a big day for me. And the key there, I think, really was, I think I very much would have been a Bracken Crocker, go out hard and die home. Uh, but you made it, obviously, in first. But it's like the first time I learned, like, you don't need to win the race in the first mile. There's plenty of time. If you're better, it will show. And uh, if I didn't have that rule in place, I don't know how that would have went. But um, I learned that going out conservatively still can work. And I did that the remainder of the year at times with with relative success. Um, but that would be the next one. I just was patient. I wasn't a young, dumb runner because I had rules from the coach and I didn't do it. And a lot of respect was earned that day, Bracken, much like you probably. That first taste of success is a very, very powerful drug. It is. But I didn't get my next fix for two and a half years. Ouch. So by the end of freshman year, I wasn't, I wasn't good anymore. Comparatively. What happened? I was really weak. I was five foot, 102 pounds. I hadn't found the weight room. I hadn't grown at all yet. I didn't have any foot speed. I was tough, but then I think I... Oh, and then I played basketball that winter, and I didn't run a step. What hairstyle were you rocking then? Uh, shaggy. Shaggy. I had a bowl cut. No. Oh, by the time we got to high school, bowl cuts weren't cool anymore. That's because you're... a few years behind you. You are, yeah. Continue. <laughs> yeah. But I certainly had my bowl cut with the Green Bay G in the side during <laughs> playoff season. Nice. Uh, but... But then I got to freshman year track, and I ran an 11... 20 maybe two mile a mm. 527 mile a 220 800 which none of them were top two on the team even for freshmen and none of those times would qualify you for state as a female it was just i wasn't i was running comparatively worse than cross country mm. sophomore year moved up to 453 10 24 uh, I don't know, maybe 215 in the eight. Still not really improving much. Junior year, I went from 453 mile to a 452 mile. I went down one second in a year. I grew seven inches and I didn't, I was that gangly, awkward kid. I couldn't run. Surprised you stuck with it. Not that that's not fast because it is um, at that age, but when you see such a slow progression, yeah, it could be yeah deterring. Yeah, so sophomore, junior year, I went from like 5'4 to 5'10". And I think that's responsible for not improving. And I went from mm -hmm. like a 10.24 two mile to a 10.58 two mile. I got like side stitches during. You got slower. I got slower, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was bad. So I didn't improve, but I was too competitive not to do a sport. And baseball was during the summer, so I had nothing else to do in spring. And then my senior year, I was finally like 5.11 by that point and had found a little bit of working out. And I had an okay cross-country season, but not good enough. And I missed going to state 
by one place in maybe a tenth of a second. I got outleaned at the line for the final individual qualifying spot to go to state. And I talked about this on my episode, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. But it was the only the second time, I think, in high school that I out, got outkicked at the finish. If I got beat, it was because I was behind. I'd never been in a sprint finish other than once and lost, and I did that day. Like a tenth of a second, and our team missed the final qualifying spot by two points. So I was like getting it from both ends, super depressing. I just walked off into the woods and I cried as a senior in high school. Are these aren't, are we, this is something we don't regret you're getting to. No, I'm just saying how I didn't have anything oh. for two and a half years. And that lit something inside of me. That next semester I took, I've talked about this. I took back to back study halls. We had 90 minute classes. So I had three hours of study hall to start my day and I dropped both of my classes. I don't know why they let me do that. But so I didn't start my school day until three hours into the school day. And I got to school early and I lifted and I ran every single day that entire senior season with basketball at night. And I came out and I went from a 452 to a 429. My first outdoor race, I ran 429. I want to stop you right there so people understand. Like some of you whose, let's say your top end potential is a 12 minute mile or a 10 minute mile or a nine minute mile. And you say, oh, I ran 954 and then I ran 929. You're like, that's it. It's not that big of a difference, like 924 to 920 or 929 to 954. Like that's why, why is that such a big deal when you're running in in the fours, a second or two is a big deal. Mm -hmm. The faster you get, the harder it is to shave off time. So that's a, that would be an unheard of improvement. That would be for you folks to understand if you're a 10 minute miler, that'd be like you going from 10 minutes to like eight minutes. No joke. That would basically be the equivalent of what you did, which is astronomical. I think if a 10-minute miler ran an 8-minute mile, they'd, that'd stand out to them too, point yeah. being. That's the improvement you made that year. And so the thing that I have no regrets about is what what my reaction was to having that really, really emotional failure in fall cross country was you have that choice to, uh, as my mom always used to say and still says, well, you can prove them right or you can prove them wrong, Bracken. And I decided to prove them wrong. I decided to prove that I am not that fringe person. And I just worked out every day and i probably gained 15 pounds of muscle as my senior year and i dropped 25 seconds in the mile by the end of the year i was at 426 and i um but i i went from not winning a race so freshman sophomore junior race year to i won the indoor mile and then outdoor i won the mile two mile wow. and i hadn't even run a two mile in a year and we wild carded me into the race and i was too tired after the mile i pr'd in the mile 426.7 was my my pr for that year and like 40 minutes later, I was running the two mile and I couldn't even warm up for it. But the race went out in like at like 520 pace, the first lap. Mm -hmm. And the first lap was like 80 seconds. The second lap was 76 or 78, then 76. And then the racing started, but they had let me warm up into the race. I ended up winning that one too. And so just that one winter of actually putting together a training plan and seeing it through and having that that little something in your head where you realize I'm doing something in the dark here that nobody knows about. No one has any idea what I'm going to try to do this year in track, but I mm -hmm. do. And I feel like I'm getting away with something. Like they just don't know that I'm, I'm getting, this is like free getting better and no one has any clue. So the first time they race me, they're just, and that's how it ended up being like that first conference race I won was, it was the uh, indoor mile conference championship. No one ever expected that I would be a factor, and so I was dismissed. 
mm-hmm. then suddenly it was too late. But that that was just like the first taste of I really respond well to a long training build and doing the work in the dark and just having this singular goal and just feeling like it's a conspiracy that you're working on and that you're going to come out the other side a changed person. And that was my first taste that you can be a changed person on the other side of a an intentional build. Who would have thought that showing up, putting your running shoes on every day and just doing the non-glorious work would actually translate to progress? Who would have thought, Bracken? And do you know what I did that year in those Mm -hmm. runs? Zero long runs, zero quality runs. There was a five-mile route and a six-mile route, and I ran them one day and then the other one the next day. That was it. I did that three to five times a week and lifted three to five times a week. I didn't do a single spicy session. I just ran for three months straight and let basketball be my my speed work. You were just laying a little bit of cement at a time, letting it dry. A little bit of cement, letting it dry. And pretty soon you had a foundation you built, didn't even know it. It's a good lesson for people to hear. Like if you just commit to something that like it happened. I mean, you were going through puberty and all that, which factors in slightly, but um, not that much. No, no. But that, that feeling, I wish everyone could get that feeling that like that conspiracy feeling that Mm -hmm. you're just doing something sneakily and you're going to take care of it. And if you just do the sequence, correct, you're going to come out the other side and everyone's going to be totally blown away that you're not the person that went into that process. Hmm. Felt like, like a heist, like the, the, the montage before a heist, like a bank heist in a movie where they're setting everything up and they're setting everything up. And then on day, the day comes and everyone's like in disarray because this plan was so perfect. That's how that training block felt. I felt like I was preparing for a bank heist. And every time since then, I just kind of get off on that process. You were more like Rocky in the meat locker, man. That too. Or in Russia. That's what you ended. I mean, that that's what ended up happening. Rocky, meat locker, success. Bracken, running shoes, success. Yep. I listened to the eight mile soundtrack every single run that entire <laughs> winter. That's how I know you're younger than me because that didn't come out until I was a senior in college. Um, <clears throat> it's true. Yeah. Um, well, mine comes my, uh, my next one comes my sophomore year here. And, uh, again, this is a story I told, I think in, in my, uh, get to know your host episode way back. That was like two years ago now. So <clears throat> probably not top of mind, but, uh, I had <clears throat> become our best runner by my sophomore year. Um, I ran nine fifty four in the two mile and four thirty something in the mile 36 anyways, um, but I wasn't necessarily the fastest guy in like the eight and the four. I hadn't developed that speed yet, n- nor have I maybe ever, but, um, we qualified in the four by eight, uh, to go to sectionals, which was a big deal. Our four by eight made it to sectionals. Uh, and sectionals is the meet that qualifies you for state. And at the time, the top two teams go and the top two individuals go in each event. Well, I was a sophomore and my three uh, teammates were seniors. So it was one sophomore and three seniors. Just so happens that these three seniors that were on my relay team had never gone to state for anything. They had never make it. This was their one shot. And we were an outside shot at best, like the fifth best time or something going in. Um, and coach, I had been lead off and second. We had a guy that may or may not have run faster than me, top end potential, a senior, he said, you're going to be the anchor, Kirk, because I trust if anybody can do something like 
out of themselves is probably you. And I know that if anything, you'll go down swinging. And I had that like that character built up when I was younger because that's tough as nails. I really was. I don't know. It was just in me, right? And uh, I don't know where it came from. I just had it, I guess. And anyways, we're running and we're running well. First guy runs like a 202. Next guy runs like a 203. Next guy runs a 204, which is about as good as it gets for him. And they come down the home stretch. I am the anchor leg, which is the fourth of four people. And Stevens Point is out front by like 10 seconds. They're one of the major powerhouses in Wisconsin. And you know that. They always had teams. Stevens Point was out front, and I got the baton exactly next to the tied for second place. So it came down to myself and this other kid. Uh, for the teams to go to state. It was all on our shoulders. Whoever beat whoever would take their team to state. And I remember the seniors just yelling at me, like, you got to do this for us. Like, they were screaming at the top of their lungs, and the energy was crazy. And and it's the first time I took a race, and I went out like I had only a lap to run. And this is when I started to learn how to gauge my effort. And I sprinted off that line, and I cut in front of this kid. And my previous best was a 203, which is not that fantastic. Um, it's good, but it's not great. You're not going to win races with that. And I said, I'm going to die trying. And I led this kid all the way through the first lap. He was right on me, pulled up on my shoulder. I surged as hard as I could on the back stretch. He's still off my shoulder. And by the grace of God, somehow, I think I fought him off just enough. And we both came down the final stretch of that four by eight, tying up like the two that you've never seen. And he never inched past my shoulder. And I crossed the line in second place, maybe a half a second in front of third. And I ran 201, which was a two-second PR for a sophomore. That was a, I was still 15. It was a big deal. And uh, dudes picked me up. It was the most amazing experience ever. And what I did is I just committed to the race is what I did. I committed. I said, we're either going to go or we're not. And I went and ran my gourd off at that time. And me and three seniors went to state. And it was the coolest feeling I'd ever experienced up to that point. And if anything up to that point didn't solidify that this was who I was, that was it. And then we went to state and laid a complete egg. I think we took second to last. And it didn't even matter. It did not matter. Um, and I think it was just like we, we talk sometimes, now I can digest this, about there's times to like be patient and there's times to insert yourself in a race, like when the time is right. Well, when there's no tomorrow, guess what? The time is right. And, and it worked out. And I don't know how that guy didn't beat me, but he did not. And we went to state. Good memory. It's the, that feeling that people chase is of like sprinting away from someone or catching them from a long way down. That's the like that ideal of a great race. But the actual experience of being totally tied up and dead at the end of a race, shoulder to shoulder with someone and realizing mm. that they're you can only go slower every step here on in and just yielding a little bit less is maybe the most satisfying feeling in track and field. It's the most painful feeling when yeah. you're all out, you're giving everything there. Whatever is a hundred percent on the head is what you're giving. And you only keep getting like the piano put on your back. It's like, I'm only us. And for some reason it happened to both of us. And I think because in hindsight, I surged when he tried to pass twice and I think I just took it out of his legs enough. And I didn't know that that's what I was doing at the time. But in hindsight, no regrets, brother. None. None. Well, I went off to college then, Kirk. 
and I didn't have a single good race my freshman year. I was trying to run at a Division One school. Campbell, right? Campbell University. The first race we went to for cross country, we lined up, and on one side of us was, I think, Liberty University, which is where Josh and Jordan McDougal went. And Jordan McDougal won D1 cross country the next year. And on the left of us was Duke University, who weren't even a powerhouse, but an ACC school and a school I grew up watching, Coach K, Coach Basketball in the Final Four. It was just culture shock, and I took bottom five of the entire meet, maybe 10. It was horrific. And it just set off a chain of reaction. I did nothing well that year. I was overtrained, out of my league. Uh, in hindsight, wasn't even eating enough to to set myself up for success. But I popped two workouts that year that were still to date two of the best runs I've ever had in my life. The first day of practice, we did the 16-mile route. And I talked about this on my episode. It was like 93 degrees at 6, 6.30 in the morning and North Carolina humidity because this is like August 17th or something like that. And you just went out and it was an unofficial time trial. It was a 16-mile route and it determined pecking order on the team. And I cracked and crumbled so badly. I was just getting swallowed up by the female team who left like five minutes after us to avoid cockfighting out on the course they ran me down mm-hmm. and just spit me out it was terrible and halfway through the year we redid that 16 mile loop for probably the fourth time and it clicked and i just every mile clicked off a little faster and a little faster and a little faster and probably ran my last 10 miles at 620 average which for me at that time was absolutely otherworldly i'd never had a run like that but just the the months of mileage clicked on that day and I still didn't race well after that, but it was the first run that made me think I could be a distance runner if I put enough time in. Because up until that point, I had never run well longer than a mile or two miles. Cross country was still a really bad situation. So that was one. And the other time was we had a, a workout on the cross country course where we did the 10K course in intervals of 400 meters. So I want to pause you really. I want to pause you really quick. Yeah. What? One, I want to pause you because I want to remind the listeners who seem to care about you and us for some reason that you weren't a great distance runner. People think of you as like an endurance athlete and you have become that, but you were one of those guys that had to fight and claw to to build your stay power. Your top end potential ended at the mile, maybe the two mile. Uh, Really, I mean, comparatively. And so people think of you as a traditional distance runner, but you are not. You are more in your eyes like a ball sport athlete and a fast twitch athlete who happened to like earn your distance legs through consistency and hard work. And this is just outlining that like very, very well that I don't think a lot of people like make that like, oh, Bracken's always just been really good at the long stuff. Like that isn't the case. You've earned that over the years. So I just want to interject with that. Just Thank to you. pat you on the back. And then the other thing is... I, you can tell your next story, but we need to talk about why you burned out. Like, so people can understand okay. like to how to avoid it themselves. Like why that happened and what, just because if we're, we had to teach them a little something here. So I ran hard every day. Okay. There you go. You ran hard and long every day. I was the low man on the totem pole. I was one of the three worst cross country runners on the team at a D one program running an eight K that year. My PR was twenty seven thirty nine. Mm-hmm consider it a five mile race that is 530 per mile yeah 
So for the average person, that's really fast. For a college runner, that is atrocious. On scholarship? On scholarship. And so, and our coach wasn't a, a very nice man. I'm sure he was a good guy in some realms of life, but he wasn't gentle with us. He informed you daily that you're not going to have a scholarship next year. Really? You're mm. a pussy. You need to be better. You Would he call you be that? Better. Would he call you oh, the yeah. P word? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's not a word I use in my everyday vernacular. I am quoting my coach. I want to knock that guy's mailbox over. <laughs> huh. Well, that's good because then you go to D3 and you run 26-10 as a freshman, but you're D3. People think you have a, you have some hope. <laughs> that's your mistake. You should have went D3. I was our 11th guy at 26-10. Don't get me wrong. but um, that's a fast team. We had a good program. We were national champs next year. But continue. Okay, so you ran hard every day. That was... That's the prop. Yeah, you're 18 years old. Your coach is telling you you're not welcome back next year because you are taking up a roster spot that could go to someone who's actually a good runner. And so you work harder because that's the only thing you can control. And you doubled your mileage and yeah. worked harder. Yeah, high school, I think I averaged 20 to 25 miles a week and I was running 60 to 70 miles a week. And he was upset about that. I needed to be higher. Runners beware. Don't do what the pros do out of the gates if you're aspiring to be better. Doesn't work. A good coach would have brought you along the right way, but nonetheless, uh, lessons learned. Don't run hard every day, and don't just increase your mileage by double and think you're going to miraculously get better. It doesn't work that way. In fact, it can work the opposite like it did for you. So yeah. continue. But so you tell an 18-year-old kid who's a competitive athlete, has some fire in him, that he, all those things, that he's useless, he's worthless, he's terrible, he's not good, and probably can't ever be good, and that he might not make the woman's team. And he's going to run hard every day to try to prove you wrong and to try to get better. What's this guy's address? <laughs> like Maybe he had a method to his madness. I left after the first year because I have a problem with uh, authority I don't respect. Who doesn't? And I will be the first person to admit that. I have a problem with authority if I don't feel that they've earned my respect. And I had no tolerance, so I left the university. Mm -hmm. Maybe by year, the, the upperclassmen loved him. So maybe there was a method to the madness and I didn't get to see the full vision. But that's that's not what this episode's about. I ran really hard every day, burnt out, got injured, but I popped off two workouts that year and they were so glorious that they sustained me for like the next four years, believing I could be a distance runner. And the second one was 24 by 400 on the cross country course at, it was supposed to be faster than 5k effort and you got 30 seconds rest. Jeez. And it was just hang on until you were off the pack. And there were three of us that finished the workout together, probably 11 guys on the team. And we dropped eight people throughout the workout. Every 30 seconds, it started. And if you finished off the pack on the rep, you were out. And I made it through the whole thing and felt like I had a run in me at the end. And it was hilly and it was broken running and there was some, some bad terrain and short rests. And that day, just I didn't know what it was yet. But I loved the workout. It was my second successful run that year, which is kind of wild. But it was the precursor to trail running and OCR for me, hmm. where I cannot hang with these guys on the track. I cannot hang with them on the roads. I can't hang with them on the grass. But if it gets nasty enough, I can mitigate my lack of endurance and I can recover really quickly on reps. And it just got my wheels turning a little bit and they didn't fully turn until later, but those, that run was just one of the, to date, one of the best workouts I've ever had. I just left feeling like I'm a runner. 
I love that. Do you remember what kind of splits you'd have to run? Like what you were running? You were on grass and crappy terrain, but I want to say we were between seventy-five and seventy-nine. Okay, on junky stuff. So we were running five minutes to five. What would that be? Sixteen, five to five sixteen pace for twenty-four mm-hmm. by four hundred on thirty seconds rest. And some of them had to have been slower if they were hill based. Sure, but that's that in my memory. That's what I recall. But granted, that was 2005. So take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, that's a classic mid-distance runner trying to be a distance runner. And they can, if they're going to pop a workout with a distance squad, it's because they're getting this little rest. And that's enough for guys like you and me. Like I was, let's say, our seventh best guy on our cross-country team the year we were national champs. But I might be third or fourth best if we did thousands with 60 seconds rest. But anytime we strung it together, it didn't work for me like that. But if we could get the right workout, I could show glimmers of hope. And I think part of that is your ability to recover quickly, like how much that does for you. And that goes to show, like, if you're an obstacle course racer, guys like you, you hit a Z wall and that takes you 10 seconds. Well, that was a 10 second rest. You just got your batteries recharged faster than others. Mm-hmm. And you regain your top end potential quickly. So that doesn't surprise me, really, to be honest with you, because I was the same way. But yeah. that's a pretty big improvement. That's a big workout. That's an annoying workout. That's six miles of 400s. Yeah. Speaking of which, did you see what Ian Caskey did for his 41st birthday? 41 by 400 meters? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did. Wild. Good for I didn't you, look Ian. at his splits. Yeah, good for you, Ian. He averaged like 547 for the 11 mile or 13 or 15 mile run, whatever it turned out to be, he, with his rest. 547 wow. average so he was moving well ian i know you're two years older than me year and a half but he attempted you know i've been posting these workouts of the week it's been my mm-hmm. thing late, and i got one i'll post either today or tomorrow but he's been attempting some of them mm-hmm. <laughs> and i'm proud to say that ian cracked on one of them couldn't hang with kirk d went so ian suck, suck it ian. suck it ian ian's got some wheels yes he does uh i'm gonna t- take the turn here and, and now that i'm thinking of my next story bracken i uh, I'm starting to get some lessons from the, like my young days that I should apply in my old days. Yeah. Yeah. Because they all, they all have to do with committing to the race early because breakthroughs can't happen if you don't give yourself the opportunity to do so. Right. You can't break through if you don't set yourself up to do so. There's a time and a place. And most of us try to do that and fail epically. Right. But those breakthroughs happen when you do something you've never done before. And so I fast forward from my sophomore year of high school with that relay story to my freshman year of college um, where I remember this. I remember I was our 11th best cross-country athlete as a freshman. Granted, we had, a, you, as you know, Oshkosh is a powerhouse. We had a fantastic team, and we were national champs when I was there the next year. So we had a good squad, but I was our 11th best guy. Um, so not much was expected of me in the track season. I mean, I, I actually outperformed my recruiting status, to be honest, in cross country because I should have been one of the lower men on the totem pole. But anyways, we were going for a long run in December, and I was running with my freshman teammate, Paul, and he said, Paul, what do you want to – or Kirk, what do you want to – what are your goals for track? What do you want to do? And I said, I want to qualify for nationals. And audibly laughed. Audibly got a chuckle, like, a, what do you really want to do? I said, I want to qualify for nationals in the 1500. And we laughed it off, and I said, no, I really think I can do it. And then we took the conversation seriously and went our way. It was a beautiful, snowy December day. Fast forward to indoors, which starts in February, and I qualified for the Indoor National Championships, and they took 17 of us to Indoor Nationals, 
and I was the 16th time they took. So out of 17 people, I was the second to last time they took, and I was in no way supposed to be a factor in the race. Um, Can I stop you? Yeah. The way this works is more than just everyone runs it at the same meet and they take the 16th fastest, 17th fastest, and go. There is a national honor roll. Mm-hmm. And people submit their verified, fully automatic timed results to the national honor roll. Correct. But you have a window to submit them in. You don't have to submit the moment the race ends. And these can be happening everywhere from California to New York to New York, and then Wisconsin yep. in between. And so as the deadline approaches, these results are coming in and there are last chance meets where the only point of the meet is to go try to qualify in your last chance for nationals. Mm-hmm. And so this roll down keeps happening where like someone new comes in and it moves you down the list and someone new. And you it just is the keep most watching the list like every six refresh, hours you refresh, refresh it, refresh, refresh it. Refresh. Am I still in? Am I still in? Well, and I was like the 23rd fastest time in the country. But seven people in front of me didn't declare. They chose to run the 5K or they chose to run the DMR. And so suddenly... So you weren't in. I wasn't in. And then it was maybe it wasn't that many. And three of them were on my own team. I mean, we had the 800-meter national champ, Matt Gross. We had 5K national champ, Dave Krzyzewski. Anyways, didn't matter. So three of the guys from my own team didn't didn't declare. They chose other things. And three of us still did declare. So we had a, we had a squad. Anyways, I got in and I was like, I'm not going to nationals. Like I made the qualifying time, but I was too down, too far down the list. I thought, well, anyways, it all shook out. People declared and here I got in and I'm 16th out of 17 that they took. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm, <laughs> I have to race next week. It was incredible. I thought just going there was, was the best. Anyways, I go down and here I am way outclassed in my opinion. I am the only freshman in the entire field that got taken. Uh, which was surprising to me, a few sophomores. And uh, there's two heats. So one heat has eight and one heat has nine. And basically what they do is they take the three winners of each heat and then the next fastest, uh, like four qualifying times is what it is, I believe. Well, somebody's on my side that day because the first heat went out and it was a slow and tactical race. And that slow and tactical race was running 359. And I watched it. One of my teammates was in that who I had not beaten that year. So coach says, well, you boys all go run what you can. You're all going to go to the national finals. We went out. I ran 356, uh, middle of the pack, qualified for the finals. So now I went from being like the 22nd or 23rd fastest in the country to being 16th out of 17 to getting in a heat in which got me through to the finals. So now there's 10 of us. It took 10 to the finals. So seven got the cut. And now I'm in the finals. I'm like, okay, well, I'm obviously the worst one here. Like, there's no, like, now I just feel silly being there, to be honest. These guys have run 346 and three, you know, some of these studs that we were racing against. I had run 356 a couple of times and never faster. Barely got in. We had talked about the corral oh, in our that, last episode, where you sit yeah. there with all these monsters and look around. Well, Eric Keen was a teammate of mine, and he said, you ever go to nationals, you look around and you pick out your horse. Uh-huh. You look around all these stallions and you pick out your mare and you decide which one am I going to snipe. That's, and you, you pick out which one is looking the most afraid or the least prepared and that's the mare out of the group. And you are going to ride that horse and you are going to beat them any way you need to <laughs> because top eight are all American. Yep. 
and usually they take nine or ten to final. So you really only have to beat one or two people once you make Correct. it to the final. Basically, if you make it to the final, you've done your job. So mm-hmm. were you feeling like the mayor in that group of standards? Oh, I knew I was the worst one there on paper for sure. Exactly. But I remember the previous year's winner, Mark Miller, I had these sweet edition Jasaris that were all black with this highlighter yellow outlines. And he looked at me and said, God, those shoes are sweet. I wish I had a pair of those. That made me feel like I belonged. Even though he could tell I was shit in my pants, that really helped me feel like I should have been there. That was nice of him, by the way, in hindsight, at that age to compliment me on my sweet shoes. Anyways, so coach says, well, you got nothing to lose. You stay on that pack and you hang on for dear life. And if you got it, you got it. And if you don't, you don't. But either way, you might as well try. Granted, I was our team's fifth best 1,500-meter runner. We had four guys in front of me who would run faster throughout the year. So I was our team's only, our team's fifth best. Anyways, the gun goes off. We go out hot. I am sprinting even through the half mile just to hang on. I'm kicking a half mile into this race as far as I'm concerned. And I come through at the back of the pack, and it's 2.03, which is 4.06 mile pace. I had just raced the day before. I am the worst in the field. My fastest I'd ever come through is 207 through the half, and I am smoked. But he said he just kept screaming at me, Coach, hang on, hang on. And it was something, it was like an out-of-body experience, Bracken. I don't know what happened that day. But right after the 800-meter mark, the previous year's winner, Mark Miller, got tripped up at leading the race, and he he went down and the whole field was able to jump over him. And now I'm in ninth and Mark Miller spit out the back five seconds behind us. Now there's nine of us, the top eight are all American. And that, and I, that did something to me and I'm hanging on for dear life for dear life. And the pack is starting to spread out. Now we're in single file line and I'm the end of the caboose, right? I'm in ninth place and I'm doing everything in my power to stay connected. I mean, it was like, there's no chance this kid's going to stay connected and we rounded the last corner with like 50 meters to go, and I'd still hung on to the last guy in eighth place. And there was a gear in there that I did not know existed. And I passed him three meters before the finish line, and I took the last All-American spot. So I was eighth in the country when I was seated as 22nd going in. And that was probably the best running day of my life still to this day. And it was the last All-American spot, and it was you could have said a thousand ways in which I would not have I have not ended up on that All-American status. But there's something to stick in your nose in the race. And if I would have went out there and stayed comfortable and tried to run my race, there's not a chance in hell. that. I, and I only ran 357. Like, I was just dead. The guy, I mean, I raced the day before. I ran my PR the day before. And so, um, and then what I'm saying about this, about how I need to take lessons from the past, is I've openly said sometimes I'm a little too conservative in Spartan races or a little too cautious early and, but my best performances have been when I've committed early yeah. and went. And so that was the proudest I've ever been of an effort ever. I found another level of suck and push and commitment that I didn't know I had in me. And that was a, that was a no regrets day, Bracken. I like that. I'll, I'll wrap up my college experience in two quick stories. Yeah. I've talked about one of them before. And it was when the day I realized I could run at the college level because that freshman year, I realized I could not run at the college level and I left the university and I tried baseball. And then we all know that story. I didn't work. It didn't work out at baseball, but I started drinking and lifting and just living the bro life. And then I came back to whitewater and came back to running 
but I was a different person. I had a different frame. I had a different mindset. I had been away from college running for a year. I didn't know what was there. And I did all these workouts indoor, but at Whitewater, we trained like 400 meter runners for our middle distance program. Our, our 800 meter program was the 800 meter program. There were no milers. We just bumped up to the mile and that's it. We almost bumped up to the eight. So everything was interval based and everything was speed based. And it's really hard to tell what kind of shape you're in when all you're doing is 200s. Mm-hmm. We did some longer workouts, but they were all intervals and I had no idea what kind of fitness I'm in. And I went and ran a 5K and I ran 1648. And I was like, well, <laughs> what in the world? I've been training at the college level now with this team for three straight months. And I'm only like four seconds ahead of what I was doing in high school. Mm-hmm. But I'm way bigger. I'm way stronger. I think I'm way faster and I don't get it. And then we did a workout. And I've talked about this workout on here, but we did 1,200,008864. That's a long interval workout for a mid-distance runner. Why two 800s? That's what I'm just trying to figure out. I don't know. Huh. Everything else about that's nice and progressive. And it still is, but just two 800s. Okay. Then we got a 10-minute rest to put our racing flats on, and then we ran an all-out 800. To finish. To finish. I'd never done a workout like this in my life, and this was one of the longer workouts I had done at Whitewater. And you're really, your leg, everyone knows that feeling. You're at the end of a workout. You've done hard intervals. Your legs are already pretty noodly. You get a 10-minute rest, get your, your flats on, and got to the line, and I ran too flat. And it was just this eye-opener that, oh, my goodness, I can be a college runner. Mm-hmm. Now, a two-minute 800 for a college runner isn't fast, but it's faster than my high school PR, and it was after having done 12,000,008,864 and then ran a PR. And that day I just realized I, I may not be in 5K shape right now, but I think I'm kind of nasty for an, a 400 or an 800 or a mile right now. And sure enough, I went out and I PR'd every single distance that indoor track year, and I got faster every single race, all of indoor. And then outdoor, I cratered because I had no endurance. But mm-hmm. that one workout, it was such a good coaching move right there, was to do some sort of hero workout, but under control, and then finish it with something that proves something to a young runner. That was at Whitewater? Yeah, and I was just riding high after that. I called my parents. I'm I that was back with AOL Instant Messenger. I was I am and everyone <laughs> I knew like I just ran two flat at the end of a workout. I'm gonna break two. I'm gonna run one fifty five. I'm gonna run a four twenty. You know, just like what was your Instant Messenger handle? Uh, We're gonna date ourselves, but I don't think I can say it. Oh come on! <laughs> well, we'll understand it was a different time. You don't no, want to share your inst- no. AOL Instant Messenger handle? Nope, not this one. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. All right. Well, t- so can you give us one word or part of it? Nope. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> no, nope, I'm not going to. And that's how you chose to represent yourself with something that's so unspeakable that you can't even say it now. It started in middle school. All right. And I just never left. I never left it behind. So I'm not even going to say right. it. In fact, I'm going right. to cut this part out of the episode so people don't go back and search for no, it. No, you're not. No, you're not. That's not. It doesn't exist. Continue. Everything exists on the way back machine. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. I just. That's it. To, it. End of end of story. I, I. It was confidence. That coach in one workout gave me confidence that I belonged. 
And sometimes you need that. And it's really hard to fabricate that. Obviously, I'd put the work in, but in one interval, in a two-minute section of time, I went from totally clueless to, all right, I know what I'm doing here. What would you end up running in the 800 that year? I ran indoor 155.1. Awesome. Which was all conference. And for me, yeah. a 201 high school PR, six seconds off, was was really big. It's flying. Yeah, I went like 57, 56 high, 56 mid, 55 high, 55 mid, 55 low. And then that was it. Outdoor, I didn't get any faster. Hmm. And then, And then to wrap up college, I didn't have a whole lot of wins in college because I was always... You don't in college. No. Yeah, wins in college are very fleeting, yeah. But I learned how to run relaxed all in an instant. Our coach didn't do a lot of coaching. He did a lot of training with us. But the one thing he kept drilling is when you learn how to run your first 400 at almost 400 meter PR, but dead asleep, you're going to become a runner. And he never taught us how, but he just kept driving that. And then one day I got it. I was at your university, Kirk, at UW Oshkosh, and at the end of the meet, he put me in the 4 by 4 and said, you're leading off. Now, I'm not a 400-meter runner. My fastest time I had spl- open was like a 51.8 or something like that, 51.8, and I was leading off. And the leadoff leg is the longest leg in a relay because you start and run the full 400, but then your runner starts accelerating and you run an extra five to 10 meters, depending on your, how fast you're coming in. And I was out in lane eight or nine. I think eight, you guys have an eight lane track. Indoors? Outdoor. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Well, that was updated, but I believe so. This was my senior year. I still hadn't figured out how to run relaxed and fast yet. I could run fast or I could run relaxed, but not fast and relaxed. And he just, he said, we're in lane eight, you're leading off. You need to get out of the blocks and then fall asleep until someone catches you. I'm like, coach, I'm not using blocks. He's like, no, you're not. Get off the line hard. And then as soon as possible, fall asleep until someone catches you. And I did that very thing. Gun went off and out in lane eight, everyone's behind you on a stagger. So you cannot see them. And I took probably 10 hard explosive strides and then just settled into what it felt like mile stride, mile pace stride all the way down the backstretch. You've got this long backstretch out on lane eight. And then as the curve started, runners started coming up on my inside and I just started running and I just started picking it up every step from there to the finish. I just ratcheted it up a little bit to keep them on my left shoulder. And then finally, when we were like 50 meters away from handing off, I was like, all right, I guess I start running faster now. And then I just let out whatever I had and I handed off and I ran 50.02, which in an open would have been 49 something. And to date, I'd never ran another 400. I never broke 50 in a 400, but that I finished and I wasn't trashed. I wasn't sick to my stomach. I wasn't so full of lactate that I'm just like shutting down. And it was just, he walked up and he said, Hey, you did that. I was like, I did. I was relaxed. And then I PR'd every 800 for the neck for the rest of the year. I, I finished the year with four straight PRs and then I graduated and that was it. But that one day was this turning point in my life. And to this day, no matter what type of shape I'm in, I can run more relaxed than most of the people around me at whatever pace I'm running. Because of that one day where everything finally clicked and it was this glorious 400 where people say it's the most painful race in the world. And on that day, it wasn't. Yeah, that is a rarity. People... Mm-hmm. 
some people have a hard time wrapping their minds around that fast and relaxed concept because yeah. they don't go hand in hand. How can I run fast yet run relaxed? But that is kind of the secret key to unlocking like potential. All of it. Yeah. It really is. Stay asleep as long as you possibly can while still throwing your hat in the ring mm-hmm. and then wake up. Yep. That's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. And there, there's prerequisite work that goes in. You have to be doing so much mechanical speed work that running fast is not an issue anymore. Like your right. mechanics have to be good enough that you can run easily, but teaching your body to relax everywhere except where it's only needed is it's a really good skill. Hmm. And it was a zero to one moment in my running life. That's pretty cool. Um, that's all. That's all for college for you. Yeah, I didn't really have a whole lot of wins there or races that were perfect i had some really good ones but i always left something out i didn't commit to a pace or i started kicking too late or i just wasn't good enough but that was probably the single most triumphant moment where i just felt like i did it i did it right there no regrets Mm -hmm. about that one race every other race i had some regret that's awesome even if i won i missed a pr or if i didn't win in pr i missed the win college was mostly failure for me well, it is for most people because the level of competition, it's like hair splitting at its finest. And if you are not like the highest of high men on the totem pole um, or women, I suppose it is, uh, it can be brutal. Like you can be a great runner and never have a win in your entire college career and be yeah. one of the best out there and still just never win a race. It's kind of wild that way. Well, I will say I'm going to move on from college. I could start to be, I could start picking a, a bunch of other things um, in that time, but I'm going to move on for the sake of the episode to post-college I got out of college you know I had some health issues and all that but that stuff aside I just wanted to um I just checked out a little bit from competing I wanted to be more balanced I wanted to be like a complete man I was sick of being 140 pounds and all of that and so this is a very big in hindsight like I had other friends who were still running and some were pursuing somewhat running careers and I did possibly have the potential to do so if I really stuck to it, maybe in some really low uh, level. But nonetheless, I sort of detached and I just was like, I'm going to do my own thing and pave my own path and started hitting the weights. I was still running a little bit, like a few times a week. Maybe I'd hop into a 5k here and there, but very rarely and knowing I wasn't ready. Um, And I sat in that phase for years, like 2006 to 2000 and, and. 10 yeah let's call it 2010 like four years of just figuring out career lifting weights feeling more like uh, what i needed to feel good about uh, being a man uh running a little less and just developing like a true sense of self and identity beyond running and i can only say this now that years have gone by and i know who i am as an athlete now but i'm really glad i did that Really glad I just took the time to like develop a more complete athlete, somebody as a whole. Did some things that I mean, I was still fit. Don't get me wrong; I never let it go completely. But I like there was just there's phases of life, and life at that time was just like worrying about like selfishly physique and fitness and all those other things. And then I fast forward to today, and I'm like, well, I had no idea I was I was building a machine from the ground up for a future endeavor I never knew I wanted to pursue. And I just think if I hadn't done that and taken a block of time to just like, you know what, I'm not going to focus on racing right now. I'm just going to focus on being like a complete human. Um, I don't think it would, I don't think I'd be here having this podcast today or doing a lot of other 
cool things that we're able I'm able to do today. It doesn't point to one race. It doesn't point to one event or thing. It just points to like, I kind of went to the lab, did my own thing and waited for the next thing to come around that ignited a fire in me. And so I, I think we talked about aging athlete, right? Like, um, in our last training Tuesday, and a lot of times, like people just don't, good people don't get that far because they're burnt the F out. Like they just don't make it to their late 30s, early 40s. If they're really good and high level when they're young, like they just burn so hot that by their early 30s, mid 30s, they're toast. They got nothing left to give to things like sport anymore because they've just burned all their matches so many times. There's just not even a matchbook left, right? Mm-hmm. And I think if I went to take in like that chunk of time, four or five, I mean, I didn't really compete again until 2015, 2016. I had like a 10 year gap. I don't think I'd be running well with vigor right now if I didn't have that. So, um, that's one of my no regrets, non regrets, uh, just like a whole chunk of time. We're going to call it. Yeah. It doesn't sound sexy in hindsight, but it wasn't things are needed in life. I was five day a week gym bro lifting. And then I would go for, because I liked running, I was still a runner at heart. I'd go run three miles after chest and triceps, you know, Mm -hmm. it was like that sort of thing. I was reading, going on www.bodybuilding.com and looking stuff up and like in that phase, you know, and, and not that that necessarily is serving me perfectly today, but I think it's one of the things I did that led me to still want more now. And that's, it's pretty cool for you. Those of you who found sport later in life, you know, you'd be like, well, I didn't run. I don't have all the years of mileage that you have, and I'm never going to be as good as these guys. I wish I did started this earlier. Well, a lot of guys like me, like, and other older athletes who are doing well, like the, like, I don't want to call myself the exception, but I'm more the exception than the rule. If I look at all the guys I went to college with and my teammates, well over half of them are, you know, beer bellied, haven't touched any of this stuff because they're just Mm. they're they're smoked and so some of those people who found sport later in life i think are a little bit lucky uh, in a weird way because you're still hungry you're still learning it's cool you know what i took out of out of that what (laughs) bodybuilding.com it is it is the let's run.com of the lifting world where it's essentially a cesspool but if you know where to look on there not know where to look if you sift through the message boards there is so much training gold in there that you could probably learn everything you needed to know about about training, about building muscle, or just increasing fitness on those boards, just like you can on Let's Run if you can get mm-hmm. through all the nonsense. I've spent so many hours on those two websites. You have? Yeah, oh, yeah. I, mean, I don't I don't anymore. Um, I still joke with my clients. They're like, where did you come up with this workout today? And I was like, bodybuilding.com. What do you think? I still use that as when I think I'm funny today, yet- but... There's some great stuff there. You just have yep. to wade through a lot of it. You got to put the hip waders on, chest waders <laughs> probably at this point. Yeah. You got to get in there. Dry suit. Well, I left college differently than you. I had gained fitness every year mm. and left feeling unfulfilled in that, man, if I had more time, combination of being a late grower and a not a dedicated off-season trainer until the very end. And so I found Spartan Race shortly after college and got to work and then I hurt my knee and then I came back to it like we talked about an episode or two back and I had circled killing tin I I had got really embarrassed at the first Spartan world championship I was in position to take third or fourth and I uh, failed out on the very on the second to last obstacle you could see the finish line but it was three tries and you're out and I failed it three times and I was out 
I got pity applause and Lisa stood there and watched her husband fail out of the race and not earn any money. And she had to give me her t-shirt cause I was shaking so hard while oh, with cold and water and exertion. It was just a terrible moment. And I said, I'm never coming back to the sport. Did you actually say that? Yeah. I was like, this is the dumbest thing. Even though I had so much fun in those races right up into the moment I didn't. Yeah. Uh, and then after the injury, I, my ego wouldn't let it go. And so I decided to come back. But the first thing I did is I ran the Lake Geneva Lakeshore path when it was still a race. It was the last year it was still a race. And I think my high mileage week that year was like 18 or 19 miles and the race was 21 miles. And I just decided to jump into it because I loved that path so much. Is a quick refresher. Is that the same path you time trial? It's the yeah. same one? Yep, same path. Oh. A refresher to people who don't know or forgot. Lake Geneva, Wisconsin has a path. It is a mandate that if you own uh, property on the water, you must maintain a passable path through the front of your property along the water that the public gets to use. It's public property just on the path. Love it. So these are millions. I mean, some are hundreds of millions of dollars. These are massive. The Wrigley family... Wrigley Field, Wrigley Chewing Gum, they own uh, a massive castle of a mansion on the lake. It is outrageous, the things you see there. But anyway, it's a 21.27-mile loop through people's yards, and everyone determines their own way of of creating their path. So you have flagstone, you have um, like uh, boards some places, you have grass some places, you have rocks to hop, you have staircases. It's all sorts of things. It's just a really unique running path or walking path. And they used to hold a race there. And so I did it. And this is the first race longer than I think eight kilometers I'd ever run in my life, which is 4.97 miles. So five miles was the longest I'd ever raced. And 16 was the longest I've ever run. And I hadn't run longer than 19 miles in a week yet. And the race was in May. And I went out with a pack and one guy was just gone. And everyone in the pack's like, oh, he's the local stud. He's in his 40s now, but he's a 220-something marathoner and he just wins everything. Don't even worry about him. And we didn't. <laughs> he was so fast, you didn't even have a choice to go with him on this terrain. And the rest of us just raced. And at mile probably 11, I made a surge. Everyone had their watches set to beep for one to take hydration. And mm -hmm. I decided when it beeped the next time, I was going to count to five and then take off. Because okay. in my mind, they're going to have their bottles out or be ripping their goose open and they're not going to be able to respond to a move. And that's what happened. It beeped. I counted to five and on like four and a half, I took off. And I surged from 11 to 13 and at 13, I hit the wall. And I had eight miles left and they were at a truly miserable eight miles. How old were you then? This is after the world champs? 20, what would I have been? 22, 23? This is before. Mm -hmm. This is after my first world champs down in Texas. This right. is 2012, spring of 2012, I believe. So I just died all the way in. And I learned that day that I could run 21 miles. I could run more than two hours. I, I could have twinges of cramps and not stop. I just learned a lot of things because I had never raced longer than five miles. It was my introduction essentially to the ultra world. I didn't know it then yet, but to me, that might as well have been an ultra. But it was one of those, uh, those glorious deaths where everything about it was misery, but it was so perfect out there that I would never, ever replace that experience. 
and I did not fuel and I did not drink because I thought it would slow me down and that I would cramp in my gut from it. So I didn't take a drink of water. I didn't, it was just a really bad, it was two hours and 32 minutes. It took me, it's a long time to be out there in May in Wisconsin with no water. I just learned so much. It was this whole welcome to actual distance running experience in one, in one day. It was fantastic. How'd you finish? I took second. Oh, so you did, you did maintain the gap. Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone, everyone struggled. I just, you get, you get out of sight within 50 meters on that course. So they could have been 55 meters behind me and never known that I was there. Uh, okay. I don't think See, they had any on. reason to chase. I took off fast. I took off and left so fast that they assumed that's just what I'm going to do for the rest of the race. And it didn't matter if I was walking ahead of them. They never would have seen me. Well, you know, one of my secret goals is to go show up and run around that lake when you don't know it one day. Well, I've got two notifications from Strava this summer now. That FKT has been taken twice this summer. By anybody we know? Nope. Really? Like a good effort? Like they really got it? Or like... First guy nipped me. Second guy averaged 10 seconds per mile faster than I did or 11 seconds per mile faster. So he went 639 pace on that path. Mine was 650. And that's a pretty legit, like, it can get technical at time. The stairs and stuff can slow you down. The... I think it's worth about 20 seconds per mile in terms mm-hmm. of just what it does to your pace as an average over the course of it. But then it also destroys you because, like, 11 of them are run at a pitched angle, and it's always the same angle. And then uh, you have stairs and you have hopping. Pitched so... angle towards the lake. Yeah. Yeah. So like there's the pace that it does to you and then there's the overall wear and tear that it does. So I don't really know how to quantify it, but I know that I, my last like 10 miles, I averaged probably 625 or 30 on there and it felt like 550 effort. Really? Yeah. The public needs to know that you, uh, you went for a 21 mile run this week, by the way, speaking (laughs) of the path, you just did that. Who says you're not back Bracken? I did it yesterday. Yeah. It was Tim's 38th birthday. Happy birthday, Tim. And the last two years now, we've done that together on his birthday. So, Yeah, you beat up? I, I'm, I'm very beat up. Yeah, figured. Yeah, I'm walking down the stairs, holding on to the railings, that kind of thing. I couldn't run with Lisa. Kids went back to school today, and we had our first chance to run together, and I couldn't do it because I was too beat up. I, was too beat up. I love that for some reason. But to recap, that was my welcome to distance running. And again, like you said, I absolutely considered myself an athlete who runs the 800 meters and sometimes extends up to the mile. And I felt that way for 10 straight years. And suddenly one year after that, I'm racing a 21 mile race. And a lot of people be like, Oh, 21 miles. That's cute. But to me, that was 20 and a half miles longer than I was effective at. Um, So it was a, a rude awakening, but it showed me that I've got some love for that world. Do they show, uh, do they still have that race every year? No, that was the last year. Whoever oh, organized shit. it went under. Someone else bought it and said they were going to do it, and they've never put it on. That's too bad. Sounds like a fun one. It was a blast. Mm. I'm going to skip ahead a good bit. Okay. Um, no regrets will be how I got into obstacle course racing and Spartan racing. And um, I've told the story a number of times. I've alluded towards it a few times. I was simply at my grandmother's home for Christmas in 2015. We had NBC on in the background and Spartan Race came on. It was like Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. They always played the Spartan Race World Champs. It was an hour special, the interview style format, the really well put together productions that they did a great job with. 
and uh, I proceeded to ignore my family for the rest of that hour. Now you've you've told this before, mm-hmm. and you always say that line. But then we had a conversation this past week where you said, I can't have a TV on in the room or I ignore everyone. Like I just zone in and I don't engage in conversations. I always thought it was just a saying you said. And this week I realized you actually would have totally gone tunnel vision and ignored <laughs> yeah. everyone. Well, and the TV was on with like no volume, basically. It was just to have like something moving in the background. I remember I actually took it. We have like, I was still on the kids table, we'll call it. Like, oh, I'm one oh, of the grandkids. Yeah. So I got put on the kids table with the folding chairs. I still do, to be honest, because I'm that's just where where I fall. Um, and I took one of those folding chairs. I set it right in front of the TV and turned the volume up. That's exactly what I did. Like I was like, family was half in the living room and the the dining room, and I was plopped right there. Brought my folding chair over from the kids' table and watched. Yeah, watched Robert Killian kick that bell. But um, yeah, I remember it like as yesterday. But anyways, something about that grabbed me, and I went home right away. I probably that night, maybe the next day looked up the thing online and saw like, this is how you have to qualify to the world championships. I need to be at that race next year. And before it even hit new year's, I had already signed up for the Minnesota Spartan race. And, uh, remind you, I was not to remind, I actually had a stress fracture. I was injured at the time. So I wasn't running then. I wasn't able to run or what did I have? One of my many things I've had over the years. Um, and so I signed up without, even um being running at the time but i just committed right then i said it comes to minnesota i'm going my goal is to be in the top five because you used to have to take the top five at a race to qualify for the spartan race world championships that's how it used to work and uh i never even thought about it never even blinked i didn't even know how to train quite yet for it i just knew like i want to do that and so i just didn't even hesitate dove right in and that's all i could think about in training come as soon as i could run I started going to the ninja gym in January twice a week, knowing I needed to do that stuff. I started doing all this grip work in the gym and started running as soon as I could again with purpose and then uh, followed through with it. It was that simple. Never thought, never hemmed and hoed or hesitated, just freaking committed. I think they still advertise that. Commit now. Commit. Mm-hmm. Well, I committed before that was a thing. I just went for it. And then my very first race, I ended up finding one in Chicago earlier. So then I signed up for that. And what do you know? I shoulder to shoulder with Robert Killian, the guy I watched kick the bell. That 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 was the moment I wanted for myself. And here I was racing him. What would that be? Like six months later, which was really cool for me at the time. Uh, so no regrets about that, Bracken. I just dove. I, I what is it? Fire, ready, aim, or whatever. Yeah. I think I did that with that decision. Very glad I did. Didn't know a single person in the sport. Nobody got me into it. It was just uh, one of those deals. Then I got my ass kicked in Minnesota, and all these guys had this stupid apex written on their chests in magic marker. Yes, they did. They wrote apex, which was Bracken's training group at the time. The apex project. And I said, what's this apex stuff you guys got going on? And then they told me, and then I emailed you, and you – and you're like, well, I don't know if you're good enough, but you have to run a 5K time trial first. Is that how you remember that? <laughs> it wasn't that exactly, no. But <laughs> you said, before we can get started, I need you to run a 5K time trial. I remember that. I remember going out yeah. and doing it in 1613 or something. And then you were, I could tell you took me pretty seriously after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 We had a two week onboarding process where you tested out with certain things. And when your first one came in, it's like, okay, Kirk, you, Kirk, you said? Yeah. yeah I'll make room. Yeah. Slide on in here, buddy. Yep. 
So look at that. Without that Christmas vacation, not vacation, that Christmas moment with Spartan on in the background, we're not sitting here today. I don't know how it, I'm sure it would have gotten, I would have been shoved at me at some point, but that was, that was you a right purely yeah, organic moment without knowing it existed beforehand. Yep. I like that a lot. Yeah, me too. So the next one is an obvious one. That first Spartan race championship in Killington, that was my second Spartan championship. And I wound up on the podium there and it's still one of the best race executions I've ever had. We don't need to go into the story because I've told the story numerous times and it's not about making the podium because the podium at that time, I shouldn't say that. It's not about being a world podium finisher because the race there was night and day different to the quality and depth of field. But now. it's but it's not, not about being a world podium finisher. But in that moment, the sport was what the sport was and I put together a 26-week plan to get there and I followed it every single day to the t i didn't miss a minute of a 180 minute long run i didn't miss a rep of a speed workout i didn't miss a single extra carrier grip work session i did it all and then on race day there was only one podium spot available because cody and hobie were gone from the start well and this is what hold on i want to stop you <laughs> it's like I, don't, I think i don't think you should humble brag here i think you should full-on brag here and I think you should full-on brag because this race took you how long? Three hours? Two hours and 59 minutes. Two hours and 59 minutes. And how far in front of you is Hobie and Cody? I want to say six minutes and nine minutes. In a three-hour race, very often, even in today's field, if we had a Spartan Race World Championship of three hours, there is a chance that the third-place finisher could be nine minutes behind the winner. More likely six, but I'm just saying it not only... And those are the best to ever do this sport still, I think, at their top end potential. So to say you were maybe six or nine minutes nine minutes behind the lead is a top five finish maybe today if you're nine minutes behind the lead in a world championship. So I just want to full ass this bragging session right here because that, that gap says a lot. So yes, you were the best of the rest, but it's not like you were 20 minutes back and it was just like you're the first warm body that could put a pair of running shoes on and run. So I just want to say that. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I took it, I took the task seriously. In defense of the sport, that was Cody's second Spartan race. Whatever. He ran the Utah race to qualify, and then that one. So he was new. Uh, everyone was new. Now, in our defense, no one missed any obstacles that day. Oh, really? A top three ran clean. And we had two spear throws. We had a spear throw at mile four and at the finish line. And everyone made all of them. So like the, the gaps were legitimate. They weren't burpee. But anyways, point being, it's not the same sport, but I took it as seriously as I could because in that moment, that was the whole sport. But 26 weeks of building and the entire time in that build, this took me right back to high school. I was building that. I was part of a conspiracy, you know, planning my bank heist alone in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, sneaking onto this this abandoned ski hill that was illegal to go on. Alpine or where? No, Alpine would, would not let you on at that time, and they had workers. Mount Majestic, which is where the workout comes from, mm. was the even smaller, much smaller, smaller than the rock that I do my workouts on. It was really overgrown, and it was attached to, I want to say, Gage Marina. 
and it was illegal to go on there. But it was the only place I could get vert. And so I'd go really early, like 5, 5.30 a.m. on Saturday mornings and just do endless reps up and down, carry up and down, run up and down, a heavy drag up and down over and over all summer. And it was, it was 26 weeks of planning my big heist, knowing that if one person goes, I let them go. If two go, I let them go. But whatever that podium spot, if it leaves, I'm committed. And then when the race happened, as soon as we got halfway up the climb, third place was all that's left. And we all just kind of committed. And I spent, it was a two hour and 59 minute race. And I didn't break away finally until probably two hours and 49 minutes. So it was just two hours and 49 minutes of whittling the pack down until there were two of us. And then he and I going back and forth until... I think at mile 12, I got away and it ended up being like 13.9 miles or 14 something. So it was just a long, arduous day. And it was one of those where I was entirely in the moment and focused every single second because I'd spent 26 weeks doing nothing but focus on those seconds. And I, I was able to do what I trained to do. Who were you battling with? At that point, it was Sebastian Monet. He was a Canadian trail runner. And I don't know why he left the sport, but he was, he was a bit of a monster. Uh, we had Ben Nephew in the pack. He was a pro runner for Innovate out of New England. He holds, might still hold, most of the FKTs on the eastern coast. We had Marco Bedard, who was the reigning world champ. He was an ultra world champ. Marco won ultra? At Tahoe. Really? When that was still the world champs, yeah. Yeah, and he was a multi-time Olympian as a biathlete. And he was still in the Olympic program for Canada at the time. So of who we had there, that was the that was the who's who. Um, and I'm forgetting who else we had that we got rid of in that pack. But that was that was who it got down to at one point, Ben, Marco, and Sebastian and I. Was uh, post-collegiately, is that still your proudest no regrets race to date? Uh, no, because later in the day, I finished uh, the ultra. And yeah. that moment right there was still to this day like the best run moment I've ever had. With some tears along the way. If I'm Oh not yeah, mistaken. I cried. And everyone yeah. most people know the story, but Cliff Notes, I finished this race, hammered the last climb, bombed down this last descent through double black diamonds, some of the stuff at your waist and chest, just I fell a couple times. Past Joe DeSena on the way down. He was there with a group of people. I didn't know who he was. And I'm like, excuse me, I'm running for third place. He's like, okay, it's my money. <laughs> I didn't realize who he was and get, got down there, hit my spear 30 meters later across the finish line. It was fantastic. And then they said, why aren't you doing the ultra too? Because the ultra world championship and beast started at the same time that morning. And you could do a second lap and double dip. I said, no, no way. I didn't prepare for that. I trained just for this. The guy said, well, you look good crossing the line. You probably could have kept going, and I'm all high on myself. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I probably could have. He said, I'm the race director. Go ahead. I was like, oh, oh, shoot. So I don't have a timing chip. He said, I'm the race director. Go ahead. I'll get you a timing chip. And I said, well, I don't have a, an ultra band. You had they, they were so specific. You have to have one. And Alec Blendis walked up, and he said, I'm part of that group that got uh, lost off course and DQ'd. You can have mine. No, I didn't have any excuses. So I took the band and I, I refilled my water bottles and ran off. And within Wild. a quarter mile, cracked. <laughs> finish, picture finishing Tahoe, that 11th place year. Do your finish line interview and then go right back up the climb. <laughs> like that's, that's what it was. And it was horrific. So my first lap was 2.59 and my finish time was 7.40. I think I was nine minutes behind the winner in Tahoe. 
Where are you? Seven, nine. So that's semi-equivalent. But nine. with that math, I went three hours and then four hours and 40 minutes on my next lab. Oh, I feel for you. I had no calories on me. I had 20 ounces of water, and I had just emptied the tank on the race. It was just the most horrific four hours and 40 minutes of my life. But every once in a while, like my body would come awake for a little bit, and I was just riding like on cloud nine. I remember somebody handing you a cliff bar, and it basically saved your life out there, if I don't recall. Yeah, power bar, actually. Power bar. Yeah, you got it's yeah. to a certain point where you just sat down and started sitting in your own pool of tears, throwing yourself a pity party, and somebody came by and said, you need some food, man. Yeah, I just got to the Tyrolean Traverse, which is mandatory on lap one, and on lap two, it was a optional. You had to do it or try it, but it was burpee penalty. And I came up to that, and the volunteer said, are you okay? Clearly, I, I had that look on my face. Mm-hmm. This was at mile 11 of the first lap. So there's only two miles left. So this is two, two and a half miles from the finish. So I'm at mile 25, 26 now, and I haven't eaten. So I took two gels the first lap. So yeah. so I haven't eaten in three and a half hours after having two gels for the first three hours. So I had, I, whatever look of the walking dead is, I had that. And I tried to tell this woman, I can swim, but I don't know if I can right now. And mm-hmm. I couldn't get the words out. You were cold. I was slurring like a college kid at bar time. I just couldn't make my mouth talk anymore. Lear Rugland was there. Mm-hmm. He was videotaping for the second lap, and he said uh, he he has it on film somewhere, but he said, you were just slurring. <laughs> we all felt like this kid can't be in the water, so they let me not even attempt it. They just had me go around for burpees. Hmm. But I got to the other side of the pond, and I just looked down at the ground and thought, I can't even do one burpee. I can't even talk. And some guy gave me a power bar out of pity. A racer, luckily, because you can't accept outside help. And it just like my brain clicked on and I asked him for a second one. <laughs> he gave me another one. Oh, and I took goodness. off up the mountain chewing my power bar. Didn't even do my burpees. Just took right <laughs> up off the mountain. What you could get away with back in the day is astounding. You know, I'm not even going to attempt this obstacle. I'm just going to walk around it, do my burpees. No big deal. And then I'm actually not going to do my burpees at no, all. I'm not doing the burpees. But it wasn't even a decision. Like my brain woke up and it was like, you better start running. And I just tore ass up this mountain. And then like a half mile later, I, I, you know how you're trying to do math in a race? I was looking at my watch and I'm like, this doesn't add. Oh no, I didn't do my burpees. And I got down and I did 40 burpees right on the side of the mountain. So I figured. You did. I was supposed to do 30. I didn't. I'm probably DQ'd, but I'll do 10 as a buffer to like as penance. And then I'll try to explain my case at the bottom. Nobody saw you do them? No one ever asked. <laughs> oh, that's wild. That's funny. So, that was it. But when I crossed the line that day, I was crying all the way up the, and down the last climb. I was like, I was talking to Lisa and Brayden out loud because I hadn't told every, anyone I was going back out. So now they haven't heard from me in seven hours. Right. So it, it was it was just like the most everything emotional spectrum of the day. But to this day, it probably still is the best overall experience because my body just got so low. Hmm. I don't know if have you ever got to the point of slurring on a run? Mm, because of like hypothermia. Okay. Yeah. That's different. This was a warm day. Yeah. It was bad. I peed brown in the middle of the race. I lost my hearing for a little bit. I couldn't see out of my peripherals for the last like two hours. Like things were just things were just shutting down. I didn't pee for like thirty hours. A lot of signs you should have stopped, yeah. <laughs> 
but I, there was money on the line. <laughs> How much did you make? Uh, two grand per race. Nice. Two grand for the, the first podium, two for the second, and they stiffed me on the second one. I st- they still don't. Did. They still see, didn't give it to me. Race, race director got you in, but didn't pay out. And uh, see, nobody should be surprised by Spartan shortcomings with the payouts these days. Although the I didn't beginning. do, I didn't do my burpees, so I probably didn't deserve. Letter of the law, I should be DQ'd. So I think it all worked out. Yeah, I agree. Well, well I'll go one more story because looking at the clock here. Um, and, uh, we both caught up with this guy recently, Mike Ferguson, mm. uh, and he's actually in Minneapolis this weekend. So we might get together. I haven't seen him in like two and a half years or so. So I figure I'll pay him some, some patronage here. And, um, my first year, as we progressed through the timeline, 2017, I decided to do the Spartan U.S. National Series. 2016 was my first year. I did a handful of races, went to the World Champs, got my butt kicked, took 58th there my first year. Um, And that was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life, hands down. I couldn't have run a second faster. I mean, that was it. But anyways, Mm -hmm. we progress. Mike uh, finished in the 20th that year so. And he was definitely the better of the two. He won the Minnesota race, beat Mark Botris, beat the whole field by like five minutes. It was like he was the man in the area. And uh, then he goes, and the first U.S. National Series race is in Seattle. And he is locked in in third place behind Ryan Atkins and Hobie Call, having himself a race, running like we know he can. And he missed his spear, and he still ends up eighth place. I was 17th that day without a missed spear, with a clean race. Fast forward two months and we have the Chicago Spartan race. Um, and Mike doesn't know this, but he told me he listens to every episode, so he's going to hear this. But Mike, I had a dartboard with your face on it, in my mind anyways. And you were you were my carrot. You were my bullseye, brother. And, uh, and I thought about beating him every day. Every damn day I thought about beating him and how I knew I could. Because in training, I would get him once in a while, but race day, never. And so we went to the Chicago Spartan race. I'd never been on a podium up to this point. I went to the U.S. National Series race, took 17th in Seattle and 18th in Monterey. My first year pursuing this. You were in Monterey that year. You took your lumps early on, Chris. And those were both clean races, may I remind you. Really? I did. And then we went one week later after Monterey was the Spartan Race Chicago. And I said, you know what, Kirk? It's time you put on your big boy pants and you man up. I said, you do not let Mike Ferguson get away. And if he does, it's only because you literally are already past your limits. And so uh, we went off the line. I ran shoulder to shoulder with Mike because I knew I could. And I finally put my balls into the race. (laughs) And I went ahead and finally ran my first assertive race. I won that race by about a minute with a set of burpees in there. I built almost a three-minute lead. Then I went again and put the exclamation point on it and did it again the next day. And it was that very day on where I was like, all right. I think I'm understanding how this all works. And and it really clicked. And that was it. I went from no podiums to back-to-back first-place podiums in Chicago. That's back in 2017. And my theme here today is about inserting myself in the race, setting a goal, going out, committing. And then it's it's usually there when I try to do that. And so that was a big deal. And then that year progressed, and I got better and better and ultimately finished 10th at the North American Champs in West Virginia, which was uh, which was big for me, big very big for me at the time. So no regrets about that one. I could then take Mike's face off the dartboard. Um, and the rest is history there. So there you go, Mike. You were my motivation early on. Mike is one of the great what-ifs of this sport, in my mind. 
There's some Sebastian Monet. He's one of these people. Sebastian is going to be lost to history. Mm-hmm. Anyone who didn't race Sebastian or run in Canada at that time won't know how nasty Sebastian was. I don't think that anyone who who didn't race Mike will know how nasty Mike was. Yep. And it's not done. He can come back at some point. But he was in a level of fitness at one point that he was he was out he was outclassing many people. That Seattle race, for example, you were in there. I was in there. Ryan Atkins was in there. Uh, Mark Botris was in there. Kent uh, Killian. Kent Killian, and he was ahead of oh. all of them. With what? Yeah, a mile and a half to go. Mike was ahead of Hobie. It was Killian and Atkins ahead of Mike. Killian and Atkins. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wild. Yeah, and then he went and did that in Asheville. But a month and a half later, Mike Ferguson comes into the spear throw behind Hobie and Atkins ahead of all the other. And again, thirty seconds clear of fourth place, and he missed his spear again. He was the what? A, he would. Have, he would had. I'm confident he would have had two third place podiums, and he took seventh in Asheville after mm-hmm. a miss. You can't get away with that in our sport. Anyways, he just his day never came. No. No, we talked about like Sean Stevens' whale. When was he going to put it together? And he just put it together. Yep. Mike was a spear throw away from being top three in North America, like above, re- beyond reproach. Yep. It is correct. You got any more stories? I'll wrap up with one. It's one I don't think I've I've ever said on here. Because um, I have some... I have some races I'm real proud of, but this is one that stands out. It was the New Jersey Super. It was the final stop of the U.S. National Series one year before Tahoe. And I'd had a good year, but I had come up short in a few races, but had a good season. But we, we line up at the start, and if anyone's not run the New Jersey race, it is a real mountain. It's not the biggest mountain, but it's a nasty mountain. And you start at the very bottom of it, and you just stare up. And we started with probably a 12,000 to 1,200-meter 1, climb right up this thing. And it was Kent, Killian, Woods, Atkins, Cody, uh, Yuri Force was there, I think a whiskey, Glenn, Chad Trammell. It's a good, big field. But, you know, back in the day when everyone came to every race and it was the last race before Tahoe. So everyone's, this is the big tune up. It was a super distance and we got off the line and my heart rate jacked going up that first climb. I was living at altitude this year and I think the intensity off the line at sea level was tough for me. Mm-hmm. You rarely have a disadvantage at sea level, but high intensity work is tough. And I got dropped real early up the climb. I had to settle back and I could see everyone up front. And then about halfway up the climb, I started getting my legs back and I worked back up. And at the very top of the climb, I hitched on to, I got right past Kent and right onto Woods's shoulder as we crested the mountain. And we went over the backside and Woods took off down this. It was probably like a five to 10% decline, twisty single track. And Kent and I got right on his shoulder and just rolled with him. And we ran for like a mile, mile and a half like that. And then Kent got ahead of us through an obstacle gauntlet. And then we worked back up into it. And then we climbed all the way back to the top of the mountain. And we get to the top. And we were all running for third at that point. It was Killian and Cody up front. Cody hits his spear, runs off. Killian misses his spear as we come around the corner. And Kent and I both hit our spear and take off. And I think Woods was probably like 30 seconds behind us at this point, which... To that point in our career, I don't think either of us had 
put time on woods in a mountain course before. Mm. And so we go down. It's just Cody ahead of us, and Kent and I are both looking at each other, like grinning like idiots. Like, this is our day, man. This is our day. The world champ just missed the spear. Woods, we're, we're moving away from today. We got this. And we went down, did the obstacle gauntlet together. Uh, he got ahead of me a little bit. I walked him back down on a bucket carry. He got back ahead through Herc Hoist and something. And I caught back up to him on a descent, and we went down into the festival grounds for what I thought was bucket carry, little small loop finish. And so we've only got like a half mile left, and I decided I'd been planning this carry move for like a year if I ever got in this situation. It was just an up and down carry, straight up the ski hill, straight back down. And so I picked it up and went right around him and then hit the brakes and just hiked right up it. And whenever I felt him want to start to move, I just picked it up a little bit. And right before the top, like 10 feet before the top where this hairpin turnaround is, I slowed a step and then sprinted. So he had to hit the brakes just slightly, and I sprinted to the top and hit this probably 30% decline through grass with a sandbag as hard as I could possibly hit it. Like safety was out the window, and just this is my decisive move. And probably put like 30 meters right there. Mm. Dropped it off. It's like ESPN cameras are right there. This is my decisive move. We run back around the corner, go up this nasty little climb down, and now there's a log carry. And I didn't know it was there. <laughs> and I had just absolutely trashed my legs on that that descent. And so I just struggle bust the climb and managed to just stay ahead of them. And then we were coming down. We did one more obstacle and then barbed wire crawl. And I got through it just ahead of him. But this is the one where the pictures of Kent with his head gashed open and mm-hmm. blood coming down is because he was just tearing through the barbed wire to try to make up that gap. But I held him off, crossed the line, and then we both were just pumped because we had... Were you second and third or third and fourth? So we were second and third. Awesome. And it turned out that was the first time I beat Atkins on a... Still to this date, the only time I beat Atkins on a super or a mountain. In hindsight, he was overloading a huge block of training because he went out and took second at Tahoe that year, I believe. And you took 53rd. Yeah. And Killian was first or third, whatever he was that year. He won Anyways, that year. That was his win, yeah. We won the pre-nationals. They went out and won nationals. Uh, but in that moment, it was just like a such a nasty race because I had five or six times I could have quit on course. Not quit, but like let them go. Yep. And each time I survived that little surge and got back into the race and... And then even then almost dug my own grave on that coming up one carry too shy because I hadn't studied the course or maybe they hadn't, they had had like a secret obstacle on there, but it was a really painful day, but super rewarding. They used to have those classified obstacles. It was like half of them. You didn't know what they were. Yeah. I remember that could have been it for that log carry. Well, I wish we could keep bullshitting Bracken, but uh, it's my time. My last no regret is uh, starting this podcast Bracken. Glad we pulled the trigger on it. This has been an absolute positive change to my life. Me too, brother. Thanks for listening to these last two weeks, guys. I don't know what you got got out of it, but hopefully something. At the very least, one more long run in the books. <laughs> That's fair. All right. Till next time. See you.